You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm going to be looking today at verses 9 through 12 together. Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we'll read 9 through verse 15. And then we will pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow now before you. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together as your people and to worship. Our desire is that today we would hear from you in this text, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive from you heavenly things and spiritual things, give us understanding and clarity, and may we not just hear the mere words of men, but your word, and as the Spirit of God has intended for us, we pray that you would match today our needs with your truth, for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Well, the last time, a couple times that we've been together, we've been looking in John chapter 3 at the subject of regeneration, the biblical doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration is the sovereign act of God. And this is the definition I gave you a couple weeks ago. Regeneration is the sovereign act of God whereby he imparts or gives, grants eternal life to the believing sinner, which results in a new heart, a new life, a new spirit, a new spiritual capacity, and a new understanding. And the backdrop for our study and our learning has been this conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee who was a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. And we have seen that Jesus confronted Nicodemus with his need, not for more law and not for a deeper understanding of the law, not for a newer understanding of the law, but for an entirely new birth, a new creation. Nicodemus needed to be born again. And Jesus, when he said to him, you must be born again, swept aside all of Nicodemus's self-righteousness and all of his good deeds and all of his accomplishments and his attainments and essentially said to Nicodemus, all of it was for nothing. You don't need any of that. None of that avails for you. What you need is to be born again. And in similar manner, we have sort of, I guess I should say, I have intentionally kept the application of this doctrine of regeneration very narrowly focused and individually focused. And over the course of the last three or four or six or however many weeks it's been since we started John chapter 3, I have been wanting to sort of apply this doctrine of regeneration a bit broader than just us individually and sort of narrowly focused with just as us personally. And I have challenged you on a personal level to make sure that you are born again. Because it is possible to look like a Christian, to act like a Christian, to think you're a Christian, and even to be thought of as a Christian, and yet not to be born again. And my challenge to you has been to make sure of your calling and your election, as Peter says. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you are born again. I would, I am horrified, and I know that the other pastors of this church are horrified at the thought 
that there could be people sitting here week after week after week who are not born again. And you hear the Word of God preached. You're challenged with messages which aim you toward eternal life and toward repentance and faith, and yet you never repent and you never place your faith in Christ. And you think you're a Christian. Everybody around you thinks you're a Christian. And I would hate on Judgment Day for you to hear those words, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. And so I've been very focused and narrow in my application of this doctrine of regeneration. But the doctrine of regeneration has a much broader application than just us narrowly and individually. And I want to sort of address that here this morning. Regeneration as it applies, that doctrine as it applies to everything that we do as a church. We could just leave the subject of regeneration and my challenge to you of are you born again, but then I don't think that you would have the benefit of understanding how an under, of knowing how an understanding of regeneration affects everything that we do here. It affects how we do music and why we do music the way that we do it. It affects how I preach, how we teach Sunday school. It affects our youth ministry. It affects every presentation of the gospel that we give. How we run Awana, all of that comes out of a doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration is not just a challenge to you, you must be born again, but how we view and understand regeneration affects everything else we do as a church. So let me just review quickly what regeneration means. Man is born dead in his sins, in his trespasses and sins, and is completely unable in and of himself to change his condition. It is not that man is as bad as he can be, it is that man is as bad off as he could be. Our situation without Christ could not be worse. We cannot do anything to attain righteousness. We cannot do anything to acquire righteousness. We can't do anything to make ourselves righteous because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are as bad off as we can possibly be. Utterly lost, totally hopeless, without any ability in and of ourselves to change our condition. Totally dependent on divine grace. And what we need is to be made something that we are not. We don't have spiritual capacities or spiritual understanding. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. The natural mind is hostile to the things of God, does not submit itself to the law of God because it cannot do so. And so man hates God, he hates Christ, he hates righteousness, he hates holiness, and natural man in his natural state wants nothing more than to spend eternity completely separated from the God that he hates. That is our natural condition. So... We must be born again. We must be given new life. And we can't do anything to make ourselves be born again. Because regeneration is not the work of men. We are born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I can't create new life in somebody else. I can't make you to be born again. There is nothing that I can do to give you spiritual life. That is a sovereign work of God. The Spirit of God must do it. And the Spirit of God does it by His Word according to His will. And the Spirit of God always does it by an established means through an established medium. And do you know what it is? It is the Word of truth. James chapter 1 verse 18 says that in the exercise of God's will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not from a seed which is perishable, but from the imperishable, the living and abiding and enduring Word of God, which does not fade away, it does not it is not corrupt, it does not perish. He does that through the Word. So how does the Spirit of God regenerate the lost sinner? By the Word of truth. Now that fundamental theology affects everything that we do here on a Sunday morning. And I want to flesh take the time here this morning to sort of flesh this out and help you to see this. Predominant in our day... I think, is a cancer growing on the American evangelical church, which is literally 
sucking the lifeblood out of us. And this is the cancer. It is the unwillingness and the inability to distinguish the true believer from a false convert. It is the unwillingness and the inability to distinguish a true believer from a false believer and to discern who is a true Christian and who is not. The unwillingness and the inability of Christians to do that is sucking the life out of the church. And that is why we have men like Joel Osteen, who's considered an evangelical leader, even though he's a heretic, and men like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and others like them who are able to suck the life out of the church by injecting all of these dangerous doctrines of demons into fellowships, and they go unchecked. And nobody wants to stand up and say, the man is a heretic. Men like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and Doug Padgett and other emergent leaders, these men are heretics. They deny the foundational essentials of the gospel, and they are heretics. And they, their God is their belly, and their end is destruction, and they will perish in eternal flames unless they repent and believe the gospel, because they're not Christians. And the church is unwilling to say this. The church is unwilling to acknowledge this. And so that inability and that unwillingness is sucking the lifeblood right out of the church. Because we cannot distinguish, and we do not want to distinguish, who is a true believer and who is not. So any celebrity who names the name of Jesus, wears a cross around their neck, and talks about a very deep, profound, emotional, religious experience, however true it might be, is instantly hailed as a believer. Their books are sold in Christian bookstores. They're put out on the stump on the speaking tour, and nobody stands up and says, hey, 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 hey. Shouldn't we give them a chance to prove with their life that they're actually regenerate before we assume that they're Christians? Just because they've had a religious experience and they name the name of Jesus doesn't make them a regenerated believer. What indicates that somebody is regenerate? A regenerated life, newness of life. And the marketing, the whole marketing scheme of the evangelical church today is all geared from a theology which says, It is the speaker or the preacher or the church or the Christian's ability to persuade people to become believers, to make them Christians through the presentation that makes them Christians. And so what we have, look at, let me put it this way. If you believe in your mind that you have the ability to make somebody else to be born again or become a Christian through whatever aura you create in the church or however it is that you present the gospel or whatever you do on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or a Saturday evening service, if you think that you have the ability to do that and to create in somebody spiritual life, then you will do anything you can to get a soul saved. You will go out and you will take a survey and ask the question, what antic, what music, what media clip, what movie, what sermon series, what environment do we need to create that will make people more susceptible to believing in Jesus? That will make people more likely to respond to the gospel? And no antic, no antic will be too far-fetched. Nothing will be too carnal because after all we're talking about eternal souls. And so whatever we need to do, however we need to do it, Let's do it so that when the unbelievers come in, they will, we will create an environment that will make them more likely to respond to the gospel. And so our worship team really needs to dress in acid wash jeans with holes in their knees, get their ears pierced, get some tattoos on their neck, grow a little soul patch. People will see how relevant they are, how hip and how cool they are. And if we just have the perfect music set, followed by the perfect message with just the right illustration at just the right time, we can create an environment where people respond to the gospel. Do you believe that? I certainly don't. That's why we don't pull any of those antics here. I cannot in any way cause anybody to be born again through anything that I do. That is the sovereign work 
of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God who brings regeneration to somebody. So everything that we do here on a Sunday morning is geared to the believer. And how we present the gospel and the way that we present the gospel and the gospel that we present is all birthed out of our our doctrine of regeneration. We believe that the Spirit of God does it and that we are just instruments in proclaiming the gospel message to them. And it is more than ironic to me that in churches where all of these antics take place, that the desire and the drive is to remove the Word of God from the service, put up a translation of an amplified, expanded living edition on the screen, and don't ask people to bring their Bibles and stay away from explanations of the biblical text. Don't read the Bible from the Bible. Keep the Bible out of it, doctrine out of it, because doctrine divides, and we don't want to confuse people with long explanations of the biblical text to them. And you know what's going on? In a supposed desire to reach the sinner, we are keeping from the sinner the very thing that the Spirit of God uses to regenerate the sinner. A more crafty, demonic deception could not be invented if we tried. Keep the Word of God away from people in hopes of reaching them. Just two words for you. Pathetic. That is hopelessly pathetic that we would do that. Friends, everything we do here Everything we do as believers when we meet together on a Sunday morning comes out of a right understanding of the doctrine of regeneration. And the modern-day mentality is birthed straight out of the 1800s, the Second Great Awakening. Here's a little history lesson for you. Don't confuse the theology of the First Great Awakening with the theology of the Second Great Awakening. The theology of the First Great Awakening was George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. The theology of the Second Great Awakening was Charles Finney. It was out of the Second Great Awakening, which I would argue was really not even an awakening. It was more of just an emotional appeal to people. The theology of the Second Great Awakening under Charles Finney was this. I can create, I can create an environment in which people will respond to the gospel. And if we can just create the right environment, we can leverage, push, pull, trick, persuade, whatever it is, people into receiving Christ and making a decision. That's where the altar call comes out of. You know, you know when the altar call started? Second Great Awakening under the ministry of Charles Finney, who was a heretic, by the way. His theology was if you create an emotional environment, you can get people to come forward, and in making a decision, they will get saved. Do you understand that a decision doesn't save you? No decision that you have ever made saved you. You may decide that you need to get saved, but that decision does not save you. You may decide that you need to come to Christ, you need to repent, you need to believe, but those decisions don't save you. No decision that you've ever made has saved you. You know what has saved you? The regenerating work of the Spirit of God. That's what saved you. Jesus saved you through repentance and faith, which are gifts from Him. That is how you got saved. No decision you've ever made saved you. So the Second Great Awakening said, if you can just get people to make a decision, they will get saved. And in our day, and I think Alistair Begg was right when he says in our day, the presentation of the gospel is seen as analogous to a sales presentation, a marketing exercise, where we're trying to pitch a product, namely the gospel, and to a group of consumers, namely the audience, that's you, and from I do it as a salesman. So I'm the salesman, you're the consumer, and I have a product, and my job is to overcome consumer resistance and get you to buy my product, which is the gospel. You understand that? That's how entire ministries are built, under that sort of model. Do you think the gospel is a product? Is Jesus a a product that we pitch to people? It's not, is it? The gospel is a declaration. The gospel is a message. It's not a product. And I would suggest that probably the bulk of our fear in presenting the gospel in one-on-one evangelism boils down to the fact that we have been so imbibed with this way of thinking 
that we think that our job is to sell our product, the gospel, to the person across the table from us who doesn't know Christ. That's not your job. Most of us don't like doing sales. If I ask for a show of hand, who of you likes to do door-to-door sales? Maybe one or two people would put their hands up. The rest of us don't fashion ourselves as good salesmen. And so we don't share our faith because we think that what we're trying to do is overcome consumer resistance and get somebody to buy a product that they don't think that they need. And nobody wants to be that type of a salesman. But if you understand rightly the doctrine of regeneration, that it's a sovereign work of God whereby He grants eternal life to those who believe on His Son, then you understand the gospel is not a product to be pitched. Jesus is not an item in which we try to get people to purchase and not make a decision for Him. But the gospel is something that we just simply proclaim. And friends, if we have in our minds a hashed up theology of regeneration, we are going to have as a church a hashed up practice of Christianity. That's what it boils down to. So we need to get clear on what the doctrine of regeneration is. All of our music and everything that we do here and all that we do in presenting the gospel, all is birthed out of our theology of regeneration. Who are we speaking to? How are we doing what we're doing? And why do we do what we do? It is because we believe that regeneration is not something that you decide to do to yourself. It's not something you can do to yourself. It's not something that the preacher does to you. It's something that the Spirit of God must do. Do you know that manipulating people's emotions is one of the easiest things for a speaker to do? Do you know that? It is the easiest thing in the world for a speaker to follow a good musician or good music team and manipulate people's emotions. Between Mel and myself, we could here manipulate your emotions. That would be the easiest thing for us to do. And we could do it successfully. Because you can tweak people's emotions and with the right music and the right studies and doing things the right way and crafting it all and packaging it all, we could affect how you think about all kinds of things and twist how you respond and manipulate almost any emotional response out of you that we wanted to. But can we cause you to be born again? We can't do that, can we? There's nothing that Mel can do. There's nothing that the music people can do. And there's certainly nothing that I can do that can cause any of you to be born again. That is the work of the Spirit of God. So that's the broader application of the doctrine of regeneration. Now let's get into John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. In order to bring clarity to our thinking on the subject of regeneration, we're looking at John chapter 3. We saw that Nicodemus so far has spoken twice. He only speaks three times in our passage. The first is in verse 2 when he gives Jesus a compliment. We know that nobody can do the signs that you do unless he has come from God. We believe that you are a teacher sent from God. Now that was a compliment. Jesus responded to that, not even by thanking him for the compliment, by saying, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Very confrontational way of addressing somebody, right? You'd think that they would sit down and discuss and have tea and kind of go back and forth and exchange compliments and exchange contact information or whatever. Jesus just got straight to the heart of the issue. Nicodemus, you must be born again. All of your Phariseeism, all of your accomplishments, all of your righteousness, nothing. It counts for nothing. It avails for nothing. So then Nicodemus expressed his confusion. How can I be born again? How can I, an older man, be born a second time? Do I enter into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Then Jesus clarified it and said, No, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You've been born of the flesh. You must be born of the Spirit. Unless you're born of the flesh and the Spirit, unless you are born of water and the Spirit of God, you are not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now Nicodemus' third response is in verse 9, and this is where we pick it up today. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Notice that Nicodemus is no longer confused. Verse 
his response, Nicodemus' response in verse 4 was a response of confusion. How can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born again? I'm, I'm an older man. This is impossible. Jesus explained that he needed a spiritual rebirth, that what he needed was not a new physical birth, but a spiritual rebirth, because you can be born a hundred times, you're still going to be flesh. You must be born of the Spirit. And now Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Now you can read that question one of two ways. You can read it this way. How can that be? And that would be what? Confusion. Or you could read his question this way. <laughs> how can these, how can that be? And that's what? That's unbelief. What do I think is the issue? I think the issue with Nicodemus is unbelief. It's not that Nicodemus is still confused about what regeneration is. Jesus has given illumination to him. Now Nicodemus is saying, no, how can that be? Me? Need to be born again? Did you miss the fact that I'm a Pharisee? Did you miss the fact that I have memorized most of the Old Testament? Of course, they didn't call it the Old Testament then because they didn't have a New Testament. But the, the Law and the Prophets... Have you missed the fact that I'm a teacher of Israel and I am a Pharisee and I am a teacher in the Sanhedrin, that I'm a member of the Sanhedrin, that I'm a ruler of the Jews? How can it be that I need to be born again? And I think this is the issue. Nicodemus could not let go of his self-righteousness. He could not let go of his self-righteousness. He could not accept the fact that he needed rebirth and a new heart just as badly as the worst of sinners. And this is the stumbling block that every sinner has to get over. You have to get to the point of understanding that you are a wretch. An absolute, utter, and total wretch. And until you come to the end of yourself, you'll never want to be born again. You'll never understand that you need to be born again. And that's what Nicodemus is stumbling over. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You have to be born of the Spirit because you don't have any Spirit in you. You need to be made a spiritual creature. (laughs) How can these things be? No. Not me. Not Nicodemus. Just... Well, less than two weeks ago now, I sat down across the table with from some Mormon missionaries at the request of a friend to discuss theology, I guess. It was the difference between Mormonism and Orthodox Christianity. I wasn't interested in discussing theology. I was just there to give them the gospel, which I did. And at one point in the whole discussion, their whole presentation, they mentioned the gospel of Christ. So I asked them, so what do you think the gospel of Christ is? And they said, well, and I boiled down to five things that was... Um, Baptism, oh, maybe it was four. Baptism, oh, whatever, one of them. They gave me this whole spiel, and I forget even what the four things were. At the end of it, I said to them, um, that's what you think the gospel of Christ is. Let me give you another take. I'll, ask, I'll give you a little quiz, and you, you tell me how you think you're going to do on this. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? Both guys sat there and nodded their head. Yeah, consider ourselves to be good people. Now, in my mind, I was thinking, see, that's your problem. So I took him through the law. You ever lied? Yep. Stolen? Yep. Blasphemed? One guy said no. I said, you just lied to me. How do I know you're telling me the truth? But I'll take it that you never blasphemed. Have you ever lusted in your heart or hated somebody, admitted to those things? I said, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer, murderous person at heart. And God's going to judge you on the day of judgment. Went through the whole law, explained all of that, went through God's standard of righteousness and why they would deserve hell and what are they trusting in for salvation. Got to the very end of the conversation. The one guy looked at me and he said, I am a good person. And I said, that is what you're trusting in to to secure your salvation on the day of judgment. And you are going to be pathetically disappointed. You're going to be very disappointed. I said, that is self-righteousness. And until you come to the point of saying, I'm not a good person, 
you will never be born again. You will never embrace the true gospel. You will never embrace the true God and the true Jesus until you come to the point of saying, I am a wretched sinner. That was Nicodemus' stumbling block, and that's what he's doing right here in John chapter 3. How can these things be? I need to be born again? Now the issue is no longer lack of understanding concerning what regeneration is. Now the issue for Nicodemus is unbelief. And you can see it in the text as you follow it through. Look down at verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 15. So that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that so whosoever believes in Him will not perish. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see the repetition of belief all the way through the rest of this passage? The conversation now has turned from what is regeneration to Nicodemus, you must believe. Nicodemus is in a state of unbelief. His spiritual ignorance had hardened his heart to the point where he was not willing to believe. And that's why Jesus says to him in verse 10, I have explained to you earthly things. You're never going to believe the heavenly things unless you accept the earthly things. And you do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus, your problem is not ignorance anymore. It is rabid unbelief. And Nicodemus was standing there in the presence of the Son of God and saying to the Son of God, I do not believe what you are telling me. Isn't that horrible? Can you imagine such a hardened heart? I can because I was there. And so were you before you were saved. That was the condition of your heart. And anybody who trusts in their own self-righteousness and their own goodness and will not confess that they are a wretch, and anybody who turns away from God's offer of salvation and refuses to be born again, refuses to embrace and believe the gospel, is saying to God, you are a liar. And that is what Jesus is accusing Nicodemus of when he says, I know what I've seen, and I've testified to you of what I have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Look at verse 10 again. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Are you the teacher? The teacher of Israel. And the the is kind of a a specific way that Jesus is, is saying to Nicodemus, you're not just one of the teachers, you're the teacher. He uses the definite article, the, not an indefinite article like a, as in you're just one of the many teachers of Israel. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Don't you think it should be so that somebody who is leading other people and teaching other people should have some apprehension, some comprehension of spiritual things? Nicodemus, how is it that you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? He wasn't just a teacher. He was a respected teacher, a notable teacher. He had name recognition in the Sanhedrin, and probably amongst most Jews all over the nation. They would have heard of Nicodemus. And here you are, Nicodemus, in this position, and you've been granted this stewardship, and you don't understand these things? Now, you may say, and trying to excuse Nicodemus, and say, well, Jesus is dropping on him some pretty heavy things. No, he's not. There's nothing about what Jesus said that wasn't in the Old Testament law, wasn't in the prophets. Had Ezekiel never read, or had Nicodemus never read Ezekiel 18, verse 31, cast away from you all your transgressions which you've committed, and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit, why will you die, O house of Israel? Or maybe Nicodemus just didn't think he needed a new heart and a new spirit. Or had he never read Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Maybe Nicodemus just didn't think he needed a heart of flesh. Maybe he thought he had a heart of flesh. He didn't think he needed a new spirit, new new heart. 
Or had Nicodemus never read and agreed with David when David wrote in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Here was a teacher of the law who thought he could get righteousness by the law. And as a teacher of the law, he should have understood that the letter of the law kills. It kills righteousness. It kills pride. It kills self-righteousness. It brings the sinner to the point of saying, I can't do this. I'm dead. I need a new heart. I cannot keep the law. But Nicodemus thought he was keeping the law. Nicodemus thought he was righteous. Nicodemus refused to believe that he was a sinner, and so he did not accept the testimony of Jesus when Jesus said, you must be born again. Look down at verse 12. Sorry, verse uh, 11. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Now, who's the we speaking of? Probably Jesus with the disciples. Jesus is saying, we, that is me and my disciples, speak of the things that we've seen. We testify of the things that we know. Peter, James, John, the disciples that were with Jesus at the time, they had been given new hearts. They had been regenerated. These men had understood that truth and, and been saved and believed on Christ for salvation. So they've experienced this. They know this. And they're testifying of this to Nicodemus and the rest of the Jews. But look what Jesus says. You do not accept our testimony. You do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of things that I know to be true, and you do not accept my testimony. What is that? That is unbelief. Again, that's Nicodemus's problem. He did not, he would not believe what Jesus was saying to him about the new birth. Verse 12, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. I've given you, Nicodemus, some very simple things, very earthly things. Regeneration, by the way, is not an exalted or really profound or strictly heavenly truth. It's not something that was never made known in the Old Testament. And all Jesus is saying is, I've spoken to you of earthly things. Regeneration is something that you and I experience right here on earth. And if you have been born again, then you know you've been given a new heart with new desires and a new life, and you've experienced that right here on earth. This is a simple thing. This is not a profound thing. And Nicodemus, if you will not accept the basic truth that you are a sinner and that you need to be regenerated, then you will never believe if I were to share with you heavenly things. What are the heavenly things that Jesus is talking of? I think it's everything else that's contained in the rest of this passage all the way down to verse 21. Nicodemus, if you cannot accept your need to be born again, you will never believe me when I tell you that God loved the entire world so much that He sent His Son into the world and that is Christ, and that that son was going to die and be lifted up on a, on a cross, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and that through that death, God would give forgiveness and eternal life and righteousness to all who would believe, not just Jew, but Jew and Gentile. But men will not accept that truth because they love darkness rather than light. Everything in the rest of the passage is the heavenly things. If Nicodemus can never get to the point of understanding that he needs to be born again, he's never going to believe that God would send His Son into the world to die on a cross so that through Him all might be saved who believe. That's the heavenly things. And see, this is the truth of the matter for Nicodemus and for you and I. Until we accept that we are sinners in need of regeneration, we will never see the cross for what it is and understand the cross for what it is. We'll never accept the heavenly things if we cannot embrace and believe the very simple earthly things that I'm a wretch. Is that a heavenly profound thing? Is that a heavenly profound thing for you to admit that you're a wretch? I don't think it is. No response to that? How many of you think you're wretches? 
Well, you say, I just don't want to be singled out and asked to stand up in front of everybody. Of course you're a wretch. And I'm a wretch. It doesn't take extra divine revelation to assess that. You know from the light of your conscience that you're a wretch. You know from the light of God's Word that you're a wretch. You know that you're a sinner, desperately in need of salvation. But until you get to the point of saying, I'm not a good person, you will never get to the point of saying, I need the Christ on the cross. That's the problem with Nicodemus. That was the problem with my Mormon friends. Actually, they're not my friends. They certainly weren't after that conversation. One of them was very angry with me, but that was the problem with my Mormon acquaintances, I guess I should say. Verse 12, you will not believe if I tell you heavenly things. What's the heavenly thing? God sent his son into the world. Not that the world would be condemned through him, but so that the world might be saved by that Christ. Now we're kind of leaving the subject beginning of verse 13 and following. We're going to be leaving the subject of regeneration and really our focus on Nicodemus as a person and focusing more on the heavenly truths that are communicated in the rest of this passage starting next week. So let's answer this question as we close. Did Nicodemus become a believer in John chapter 3? What do you think? Did Nicodemus become a believer in John chapter 3? My suspicion, and I wouldn't die for this, my suspicion is that no, he did not. My suspicion is that he left that meeting with Jesus that night thinking about the things he had learned, confronted with his sin and his need for regeneration, but that Nicodemus did not become a believer in John chapter 3. Now, there are two other times that Nicodemus is mentioned in the Gospel of John, and I want you to turn to them, and I want you to see how John describes Nicodemus in later passages. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Beginning in verse 40, some of the people, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet, that is the prophet that Moses spoke of. This is. Others were saying, this is the Christ, and still others were saying, well, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Look how he's, just, he's not believed on because of where he came from. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so a division occurred in the crowd because of him, that is, because of Jesus. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? In other words, why didn't you seize Jesus and bring him in here? The officer answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed on him, has he? I love that phrase. This, now listen, all the scribes and the Pharisees are together, the Sanhedrin. No one of the ruler, none of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed on him, have they? Next verse. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. None of the believers of the Pharisees believed on him, have they? And then Nicodemus stands up, <clears throat> Excuse me. Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears his case, does it? Now, what was Nicodemus doing? Was Nicodemus just trying to give Jesus a fair hearing and say, look, we're violating the law, we need to follow the law? Or was Nicodemus there trying to cut Jesus a little bit of slack in the presence of somebody who was saying, none of us have believed on him? I think Nicodemus was sort of coming to the front there and saying, let's, let's give this guy a hearing. I'm not quite where you guys are at. I'm not quite over here in unbelief but I think we should give him a fair hearing. Now, was Nicodemus a believer in John chapter 7? 
I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Turn to John chapter 19. This is the second time that Nicodemus is mentioned after John 3. John chapter 19. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 31, the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the crosses on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man and of the other, who was crucified with Jesus. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen these and testified that his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as in a, is the burial custom of the Jews. So what did Nicodemus do after the crucifixion of Jesus? After Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple, asked for the body, Nicodemus joined him to prepare the body for burial. Now, was Nicodemus a believer in John chapter 19? I think so. Why would I say that? Because the environment was so hostile to Jesus that it would take tremendous courage and genuine saving faith for Nicodemus to step out of the crowd that had just crucified Jesus and ask for the body and then to prepare it for burial. It was an act of worship. It was an act of obedience. It was an act of kindness and love. It was an act of genuine, regenerated, saving faith. So did, G- did Nicodemus become a believer in John chapter 3? I don't think so. By John chapter 7, I think he's thinking about these things. By John chapter 19, Nicodemus, I believe, is definitely a believer. And I think we'll see him in heaven. At some point, following his conversation with Jesus in John 3, Nicodemus understood that he needed to be born again. And he heard Jesus talk about his own death for the salvation of all who will believe. And I think that when Nicodemus saw him die, watched him die, watched how he died, he believed. And that's the end of the story for Nicodemus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to you for the blessing of your word, for the clarity of it. These things are in our hearts and in our minds, and we pray that you give us understanding of this doctrine of regeneration. It is mysterious. There are things about it that we do not know because we cannot predict it. We cannot uh, see it happen, but we can see the fruit of it. But we need to have clarity in how we apply these things to our lives, to ourselves, to our gospel proclamation, and to us as a church. We pray, Father, that you would give us that illumination and that enlightenment. We thank you for the blessing and the privilege that it is to gather together as your people to offer to you the praise that is due to your name. Thank you for stepping into history and for living and for dying and for rising again for wretches such as us. We praise your great and glorious name, the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.